This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobesi, suggested we watch the movie Megaforce, a sci-fi action movie from 1982 starring Barry Bostwick. But it turns out it came out the same date as Blade Runner, which we're going to watch instead with our good friend Paul Wilcox. Hello, welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace. I'm your first co-host. And uh, I'm Adam Gobeski, once again, substituting for Jessica Claris, who could not be here today. Funny how uh, every time a science fiction movie comes up, she's mysteriously unavailable. <laughs> That's right. Mysteriously taking a vacation in Italy. Supposedly. That's what I've been told. So, Charlie. Mm-hmm? You're in the desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. Um, wait, no, what's going on here? Because... Well, you reach down and you flip the tortoise over on its back. The tortoise wait, lays I flip on the its tortoise back. over? The, uh, you do, yes. Tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. Why, why wouldn't I help? I mean, you're, you're not, you're not helping. Why aren't you helping? <laughs> I don't like this. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> They're just questions, Charlie. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. (laughs) Shall we continue? I I think no. I think we're done here. So uh, maybe you could guess, maybe you couldn't. But uh, we are, in fact, talking about the 1982 science fiction movie Blade Runner. There was the Voight-Kampff test that was supposed to determine, help determine if you're a human or a replicant, which is (laughs) to say an android. Did I pass? Uh, We didn't actually ask enough questions to find out. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> my understanding is we have to ask at least typically tw- between 20 and 30 questions oh, to find okay. out for sure for the old style of replicant right the nexus six if you don't know you're a replicant and you have implanted memories then uh yeah it might take it'll take more questions <laughs> but uh joining us to discuss this film is our good friend paul wilcox great to be here great to have you uh so in case you need reminding or possibly you've never seen the movie before in which case I'm not sure why you're listening to a detailed section of a movie that you haven't seen, but just in case, I've Blade Runner. That. I'll have you. <laughs> yeah. okay. I've I've listened to all kinds of uh, non-spoiler-free analysis of all kinds of media. Okay. It's... Yeah. Don't turn away well, listeners, well, then, uh, even uninformed people, ones. People like you. <laughs> so Blade Runner set in the future of. 2019 in Los Angeles, which is shown to be a very rainy, very dreary sort of place. And there are lots of androids, which are called replicants in the movie, running around. And replicants look just like people, but they're artificially designed. And they do a lot of like the dirty work that humanity doesn't want to do. And so our hero, Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is what's called a Blade Runner, which is someone who hunts down replicants. Uh, and says that they're retired, and that's the euphemism for killing replicants. Deckard himself is currently the actual sort of retired, which is to say he's not dead, but he doesn't do Blade Runner anymore, when he's called back in because a group of four to six replicants have escaped to Earth from one of the off-world colonies, and it's up to Deckard to come back in and hunt them down. The end. (laughs) <laughs> i'm just waiting for that <laughs> that's that's the whole movie <laughs> don't know what all the fuss was about <laughs> so paul you, you hadn't seen this movie before um 
What did you think it was going to be about before you started? Well, you know, I had actually not really even had much exposure. I didn't know the actual plot at all. So I kind of assumed that it was going to be sort of a futuristic action movie that involves some kind of killing. That was about <laughs> all I knew, though. <laughs> to be honest, I was I was expecting like just kind of an, an action movie. Well, so you might have been disappointed then, because uh, I don't know if I would describe Blade Runner really as an action movie. No, I I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. There's lot, some action, but a lot of a lot of pensive looks across the room at each other. A lot of interesting lighting, but only only a couple action scenes that really stick out. Did you get a sense that the movie was a well-regarded movie before you watched it? Yeah, yeah, you definitely. knew. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of knew the place that it had in the the pop culture world or the the science fiction universe. Yeah, I had an idea of like of its influence. But maybe not, you know, really an idea of what it actually was. If there's one thing that I remembered about this movie, so this is the third time I've seen it. It was the opening shot of the L.A. skyline. So there's a couple of scenes like that at the beginning of the movie. There's that shot and then the shot of Deckard after he's being brought out of retirement, going to the home or office of... Tyrell, who's actually created all of the replicants. And as he goes there, it's it, it just looks like this gigantic pyramid. So it, it starts out with this sort of religious feeling almost, or like uh, an ancient Egyptian sort of feel, but at the same time having this the futuristic look as well. So I mean, I forgot a lot of the plot points, but I think those two scenes are the things that I remember more than anything. So you're saying for you, this is almost more a visual movie than a a story movie. Well, it it was until this time around. Like I'd remember the visuals and they were still pretty affecting this time, but I think I was paying a little bit more attention to the story this time around. Paul, do you think that the story was easy to follow? Were you able to pick up on what was going on most of the time? Um, more or less. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was like super easy, you know, this being the final cut. Yeah. And not the voiceover version <laughs> right. you know, left more to the to the audience to figure out, which I th- I, th- I could more or less follow. Paul did not get the handholding of the the narration from the oh, theatrical cut. That's true. I, I guess we should uh, mention right off that we were watching the director's final cut, which was uh, 2007. I yeah, think was when that was actually actually put together. So it doesn't have a lot of the scenes that kind of helped guide the audience through it. In fact, a lot. So there's this voiceover narration that Harrison Ford did, which I honestly can't remember. I'm not sure if I've seen that version of the movie. So Paul and I watched the movie together. And we watched the final cut and then we watched a little bit of the narration. So Paul can back me up on this, but it's, it's really clunky in places. Yeah. Um, so first of all, it doesn't help that Harrison Ford sounds like he's up sort of phoning it in, which I think probably is partially because he wasn't actually really getting direction from this. So I watched a documentary, Dangerous Days, about uh, the movie, the making of the movie. And one of the things they do is they go, they talk about how the movie was made. And at the point where they get to the the narration being added, uh, they have clips of Harrison Ford doing like outtakes of like other narrations where he just he'll read a line and then he'll say, this is really bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I think at that point, like, the director, Ridley Scott, wasn't really involved with the narration and, like, directing Harrison Ford at all. So it kind of sticks out for that reason. Um, I think it also sticks out just because the narration starts and goes for about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. And then it basically disappears for the most part. Uh, It doesn't help that the movie is not told entirely from Deckard's point of view. So the fact that he's narrating it, but then you get scenes he's not present for that. He's not narrating, but it still is sort of jarring. And then, but yeah, so it sort of largely disappears and then doesn't come back until right at the, uh, the end Roy Batty dies. And then you get the weird happy ending that doesn't quite fit for me watching it. I already knew what was going to happen. So I didn't need the hand holding, but the reason that it was put in initially, I guess, was that the original screening, uh, or maybe the test screenings had done poorly because people didn't understand what was going on. Yeah, there's a there's actually a moment in the uh, in the documentary where Ridley Scott says, uh, "Being ahead of your time is not isn't any better than being behind your time because you still have to figure out how to get audiences to actually <laughs> connect with your movie." That's very astute. <laughs> I can definitely see that it being such a you know influence on so many other things and having watched a bunch of things in this in a similar genre since then you know we here in 2017 me just diving into it without any hand holding is reasonably easy to to grasp more or less but you know that's because i'm familiar with many of the tropes which were like born from this movie the multiple versions that came out came out at the time that they were needed. The The original version with the narration came out when people might have needed the narration. And now that so well regarded and people are willing to give the movie the benefit of the doubt, you can kind of take that out. It's Go a ahead. special edition we can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, just, just to digress briefly, uh, but since Paul brings it up, one of the things I actually really like about the way that Blade Runner and Ridley Scott handles this sort of thing or maybe it's Warner Brothers, whoever. But if you liked the theatrical version, it's available. There's like five different versions of Blade Runner, I think. And then they're, they're all commercially available in some way. Like, it's not, oh, the final cut is the only version you can like from now on. And you're dumb for having liked the theatrical version. See, like, was that so hard? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, actually, uh, Guillermo del Toro is on record as being a fan of the voiceover. Really? Oh. oh. Yeah. Whereas uh, Frank Darabont is uh, not a fan. Again, thanks to uh, the documentary I watched. <laughs> oh, crazy. Yeah, I need to watch that. It's uh, included in the Final Cut uh, DVD set, I think. That's where I have it, at least. You know, the, the voiceover, I can see the utility of it. And, you know, for as clunky as it was. But I think after have after just watching the, the Final Cut first, what I realized that the, that the voiceover took away for me was kind of like this curiosity about the world building that's going on with every single scene you know there's just it's just kind of a mystery the whole time i mean you get that little bit of exposition about replicants and blade runners but you're not really like given a ton of information so like seeing this kind of like very like gloomy la but with lots of like bright neon lights and stuff yeah bright neon lights Lots of uh, different, like a mishmash of many uh, cultures yeah. as well. So you thought the mystery that came with that was a was a good thing? Oh yeah, like in, as far as like the the mystery of like the world building and kind of building this 
like cool future in your mind. Maybe not for like following the story of the individuals. That was kind of one of the cooler things I thought about the movie was this world that it's set in. Yeah, I would definitely agree that uh, one of the real strengths of this movie, and I think regardless of how one feels about the storyline, you'd be pretty hard pressed to disagree about just how effective it is at creating that world, just like the synthesis of the visuals and the dialogue. And you just really get a sense for what 2019 LA is like. And it's not a great place, honestly. No. (laughs) No. And there's a lot of signage around talking about getting off world, off of Earth. Yes. Like it's this mm-hmm. uh, paradise, supposedly. But based on what we hear from replicants or what we know about what's going on out there, it may not be the place that everyone thinks it is. Or at least it's, if it is, it's being built on the backs of um, replicants are basically used as slaves. In the opening scroll, they mentioned that replicants are robots and i guess that's brought up a couple of times but there's nothing there isn't a whole lot that we see that shows their robotic nature at all which i thought was kind of interesting i thought you know every time i see this movie i think at some point oh you know one of them is going to get shot and you're going to see a bunch of sparks fly out or something like that but as far as the viewer is concerned there's not a lot of difference between the replicants or anyone else or you can't tell who is a replicant and who is it mm-hmm. and uh, i think that actually is um right so for instance like james holland's character whose name is that chew maybe was that yeah yeah is growing eyes like but they're they seem to be organic eyes uh jf sebastian talks about being a genetic designer rather than like an engineer or like a mechanical engineer or something um the replicants clearly bleed something that looks a lot like blood when Roy comes to Tyrell, the things that they talk about are, it's all biological. There's not a lot of electronics talk there. So I'd actually forgotten by the end of the movie that they were even robots. <laughs> and I was reading the summaries that other people had written. I was like, they weren't robots, were they? I guess they were robots. It's uh, Yeah, it's like, almost like now, I I do feel like you see in, in science fiction, like a distinct, like, there's kind of robo androids and there's kind of like goopy gooey androids. And these were like kind of the goopy gooey ones to me, you know, as opposed to like data where you can open up the top of his head and see the lights, you know, but right. some are just kind of like filled with some sort of bio fluid with nano, you know, that sort of thing. But I think that actually ties into one of the main themes of this movie is what does it actually mean to be human versus a replicant? And Beyond the lifespan thing, like, is what really is the difference? Well, I think the movie comes down very clearly on the side of there is there is no difference. I mean, I think of the way that it treats the characters, the way that it treats the replicants versus the way it treats the humans. I mean, maybe, yeah, just as far as, you know, a difference in lifespan, a difference in memories, like being experienced versus implanted. If I were to take away in any kind of, like, angle or you know, take from the the movie itself, I would think it's, yeah, in favor of that there isn't a difference. Yeah, I mean, so I guess let's talk about what the stated differences are, at least, right? I mean, sure, there's the Voight-Kampf test is a way to tell the difference between a replicant and and a human, but... We're told, honestly. Yeah, we're told that, but we're introduced to Rachel, who's, I guess, the most advanced model so far, and it's getting harder and harder to even use that test to be able to tell. So the difference... Right, and the questions themselves are bizarre, right? Like, 
asking you about calfskin wallets and how you feel about your mother and yeah, would you eat a dog? Whether or not your yeah. hu- whether or not whether or not your husband puts framed s- naked centerfolds up in your apartment. I got the impression that it's like not so much like oh that's an actual test. This is like a real touring test, but it's almost <laughs> like this is something that we like since we basically engineered these people. We like kind of know a trick, like more like a password or a trick, or you know poke the right spot and be like, okay, there there's the difference. Oh, because yeah. Because we, we made you versus, you know, oh, there's an actual, like, difference just overall. Gotcha. But obviously, um, Rachel is there to sort of be a bridge between humans and replicants and that she's a replicant, but she seems to be human in some respects. Whereas a lot of the humans that we see seem to be quite cold and uh, calculating. Maybe it's just because of the fact that we're talking about retiring replicants and stuff and that's just considered to be just the name of the game but just the way the cold-blooded casual way in which they talk about killing these replicants and stuff uh versus the the more emotional uh sides we see of the replicants themselves like uh pris's uh innocence particularly with like jf sebastian uh zora's sexuality uh leon wanting just to have the photos that he right behind and then obviously roy batty's realization towards the end but even before that point right he just seems very alive like he's always smiling and he seems very charming in a way that like for instance deckard isn't we don't get a lot of sense of who he is besides a dogged investigator we know he's good at tracking down replicants and killing them that's all we really know i mean besides the uh i'm i don't know if i'm jumping the gun here but the the unicorn dream, I guess, shows a different no, side of him. We should, we should probably, <laughs> we should probably that, get yeah. to the unicorn. <laughs> We've reached that moment. <laughs> uh, Paul, are you aware of this actually regarding Deckard? Um, I'm not aware of like their the overall debate, but I think we we touched on this earlier, where I I did actually get an inkling that they they might be suggesting something about him. Right. So the the question about this movie is whether or not Deckard is in fact actually a human or if he's a replicant like Rachel is. And so what do you guys think? It's for me it's very hard to say. I know the first time I saw the movie, I didn't get that at all. And I was very surprised to hear about it. And on this viewing, even even this viewing, it was a little bit tough for me to get to that conclusion. And maybe it's just because it's a a subtle movie. They don't go out of their way to directly hit on that. There's a couple of lines. There's a line from Rachel where she asks if he's ever taken the Voight comp test. There's a couple of things that Gaff said, but I, I thought it was kind of hard to get at. I mean, I would say the film well, should be easy. <laughs> Certainly not. I've enjoyed, you know, reading about this and looking into it a little bit more. You know, sometimes I'm I'm not 100% sure when I was watching it, you know, and I got the idea, oh, maybe they're going to, they're suggesting he's a replicant. I'm not sure how much of that came from what I saw in the movie itself and how much of it made was me just kind of thinking, oh, there's got to be something up with him. Like, if he's that good of a Blade Runner, you would kind of expect there to be some reveal. Oh, but you're, a, but you're actually a replicant. But, you know, that moment never comes because the movie is, you know, more subtle than that. I think by, with the unicorn dream and then the unicorn origami, origami yeah. like, I, I couldn't really come up with any kind of other explanation or purpose for that 
other than to at least make the audience ask the question. What could the other explanation for the unicorn be? I guess the first couple of times I thought, I thought, oh, well, it's just a coincidence. That's just reminding him of his memories, telling him something about memory. But, you know, that doesn't... But Gaff was the one who made it, right? Why would he make that specific thing and leave it there for him? Unless he knew. So this is probably the fifth or sixth time I've watched this movie. So the first time I saw it was the director's cut, which is the 92 version that takes out the narration, but it isn't quite the final cut. And then, so most of the times I'd seen the movie was either director's cut or the final cut. Because I'll admit this, I really do enjoy this film. This is probably, I mean, definitely one of my top 25 films ever. Uh, so the first few times I saw this, I was definitely on the side of like, yeah, Deckard's, Deckard's a replicant. I see it, right? And then this time, I think I'm now on the side that Deckard's human. Really? You're on Harrison yeah. Ford's side here. <laughs> I am on Harrison Ford's side here. I'm not on Ridley Scott's side here. Um, for, for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is I think it's far more interesting to make Deckard a human and then compare and contrast him with Roy Batty as a replicant and to see the differences in them and to show that Deckard, despite being human, frequently represents some of the lesser characteristics of humanity, whereas Roy Batty, particularly in his final death speech, represents some of the best things that we would associate with humanity. And it just happens to be the case that he's a replicant. I've seen things. You people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of a lion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten house gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. At which point in the theatrical version, the narration kicks in to ruin that moment. Oh, does it? <laughs> yeah, Harrison Ford's like, I don't know why Roy Batty decided to save my life on that rooftop. that's pretty horrible (laughs) yeah i think i changed my mind now that i listened to that again i think that's my favorite scene like not the even the opening scenes which were just visually stunning but that that's a line right there that's definitely memorable that's a line that apparently rutger hauer rewrote oh wow it was like supposed to be like a longer speech and a little more like sci-fi and he basically said to Ridley Scott, hey, do you mind if I rewrite this? And he's like, so it sounds like this. And Ridley was like, yeah, great. And like Tears and Rain, that's Rutger Howard's contribution. That wasn't, I think, in the original script. It's awesome. Wow. Yeah, so that speech uh, showing that Roy is himself expressing such human characteristics. Uh, and he's willing to uh, save Deckard's life because he's come to this realization that life is just precious is really nice. And uh, so that's one reason that I think Deckard's human, because if you make Deckard a replicant, suddenly that contrast gets a lot muddier and it's not as nice. Uh, And so I think the second point is the unicorn. If you assume that Deckard's human, then then the reason that Gaff uh, 
leaves the unicorn there isn't coincidence, but it's the idea that despite being human, Gaff knows what Deckard is thinking. It's not just about whether you can access someone's implanted memories or not. It's whether you can just know someone enough to know the sorts of things they think about. And that's an indication to Deckard that, A, so obviously the surface implication that he was there and chose to let Rachel live, but also that it's a little sign to Gaff that he knows what Deckard's thinking. And it's not about him being a replicant. It's just that. That's my thought. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good take on it. And then that also ties into, I think, so I think the Tears and Rain speech is probably my favorite line. But I think my second favorite line is the thing that Gaff says to Deckard at the end. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Which is sort of the point of the movie that combined with Roy's speech of, you know, what does it mean to be human versus a replicant? I don't know. But the point is that you need to live life while you can. The movie talks about the differences, and there's the Voight contest, and then there's the fact that they might have implanted memories versus, I guess, quote-unquote, real memories. And the question is, what? yeah, what is the difference? How do I know that I'm not a replicant right now? How do I know that I didn't just come into existence in the last 30 seconds in the middle of this episode? Well, I think if you have implanted memories, the idea is you don't. Yeah. So, and, and like I say this... Kind of like a cop out because it's fun to take one side or the other. But if the movie comes down as saying he's either a replicant or not a replicant, then it kind of cuts away from that theme, right? If there is a difference, then the, the idea is that we don't know whether he's a replicant or not because there isn't a difference, right? Or even possibly the difference is that we can't know. Oh, but uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that you really hope Blade Runner 2049 does not answer this question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think people were upset, I, I right? I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. But well, I think people were upset because they just assumed that, oh, well, obviously they'll have to answer the question because by the sheer fact that Harrison Ford is still in the movie, is in the sequel. Right. But that's not giving screenwriters any credit. <laughs> so, well, they can right. figure something out if they're good, if they really want to. Have we learned nothing from the final cut? <laughs> <laughs> The audience is smart. <laughs> That's right. We might not even get the the final version of Blade Runner 2049 for another 40 years. <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> I mean, Blade Runner 2089. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously part of the, the issue, right, is that the original Blade Runner's I think fairly famously a somewhat troubled production in that Ridley Scott was a perfectionist and the financers didn't quite, they weren't on the same frequency as he was. And so they were basically just like, what the hell are you doing? This is our money that you're wasting. And you made this really weird movie. I think there's something in the clo- in the, in the contract they signed. It was something like any movie over two hours, uh, the financers got like editing rights to oh. cut it down <laughs> and that's why I think partly why like the narration shows up. I, so the narration shows up partly because that and partly because yeah, the test screens didn't go well. <laughs> a lot of things get cut, like uh, the unicorn scenes not in the theatrical release, the, the unicorn dream rather. So that never even comes up in the theatrical version. A lot of small cuts, like um, certainly to 2017 eyes, the really quite uncomfortable uh, rapey kind of scene between Rachel and Deckard. Oh, that, that's yeah. in my notes right here. <laughs> that that really struck me when I first saw it. I was like, Ugh. yeah, um, 
apparently the the full there's a longer version of that scene where it makes it a little clearer that she's okay with this right that really isn't quite there in the in either theatrical or the final cut i think even unfortunately that comes up a lot on this podcast it seems like almost every movie we watch there's some scene like that in it and we're like well we have to bring this up and say that it's wrong 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's like a- in this case you can kind of think, well, it's um it's maybe it's more the scene miscommunicating what they intend to really have. Right. Yeah. Not that they intend it to be so non-consensual seeming, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's the moment where Harrison Ford starts to lay his hands on her and then like holds them up like he's realized that he's this is a bad look for him. I think also part of the issue is just that in some ways this is trying really hard to be like a film noir movie that happens to be set in the future. And, the, you know, that just that feels like a very film noirish thing to me. Right. Of the yeah the reluctant love interest sort of thing. So I think we can acknowledge what they're attempting to do without necessarily condoning it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, makes sense. When he makes the uh, final, final cut. <laughs> that won't be in there anymore the ultimate cut (laughs) it's got every scene from every version and all the voiceovers (laughs) it's two hours and 40 minutes long (laughs) oh apparently the first cut putting that at the running time of blade runner 2049 (laughs) yeah they they were saying the uh the, the first first cut was like four hours long oh wow yeah, like that was the, the initial assembled version. They were like, well, we better cut this down. Yeah, what would that be? A triple VHS? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could probably make it a double tape if you just made them like T-160s or something. I'm going to pretend that I know the T-160. <laughs> right, so the standard tapes, the T-120, right, which got you 120 minutes at long play. Or no, 120 minutes at standard play or six hours at long play. And 160 gets you 160 minutes at standard play. Oh, or I think eight hours at long play. So God, you don't you don't remember your VHS standards, guys? <laughs> all, all, I rem- all I remember is having lots of video taping, lots of things on two hour SP tapes, but yeah. getting eight hours of EP to catch my stories, you know, <laughs> on the cheap. <laughs> so there's a character in this movie that i've forgotten existed whose name was jf sebastian he's a he does some genetic engineering he's larry, he's larry. <laughs> oh yeah from yeah. uh and that's his brother daryl and his other brother daryl <laughs> whoa <laughs> I, well i was gonna say blue palms mind for real right now for real well well since paul is wow. our guest i also have to point out that uh he was in the commercial for Hamb. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, he was... he's the guy who's going to shoot himself. Wow. <laughs> this guy is a really versatile actor. <laughs> William Sanderson. <laughs> I made no connection between any of these things. <laughs> but I don't know. I thought well, he, was yes. a... <laughs> he was an interesting character that I had forgotten about. Just this sort of loner who builds. Well, not replicants, but the best he's able to build, like, uh, lifelike dolls. So we get these cool scenes where Roy and Pris have, 
you know, work their way into his apartment and are, you know, sitting amongst all of these dolls. In fact, the one where Pris is pretending to be one of those dolls, it's kind of going back to this theme of what does it mean to be human? Like, how can we tell the difference between, you know, these toys and and the replicants and Deckard eventually showing up there too? True, although Deckard seems to figure out that she's, in fact, not one of the toys. Right, but the toys are pretty unsettling did anyone else get that impression too or did you think that they were fun and fanciful no i got the unsettling feel i don't know how about you paul um yeah i was generally unsettled but i i would be you know i'd be lying if i didn't if i said i didn't get like a little bit of comic relief from it um but yeah the the soldier that keeps walking into door frames (laughs) oh yeah that's true you know because it was you know yeah it's kind of unsettling kind of like a like a dystopian geppetto vibe to the whole thing yeah but you know also just mostly creepy (laughs) so jf sebastian also gets to be at the scene where roy kills tyrell too and i'd forgotten about that oh yeah in fact uh he he also gets killed there just off screen oh really yeah i think in a subsequent um uh like over a radio or something they mentioned that uh, sebastian's found Um... his body's found there as well you know i kind of assumed that he was going to get killed, but hoped that he didn't because they didn't show it. I was just waiting for it. And it's like, well, maybe Roy's a nice enough guy to let him go. Like, why wouldn't he let him go? Just because he's he's part of the system? I think because he witnessed the murder and oh, seemed yeah. pretty upset by it. Yeah, I suppose so. Oh, but yeah, that's uh, that's quite an iconic scene, though. Him, uh, uh, Roy confronting his creator, Tyrell. The theatrical version, less bloody than the international cut and the the final cut. (laughs) The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things, also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you in heaven. It's it's him confronting, I don't know, he calls him father, but essentially confronting God and killing him. I mean, this this is just a tired retread of the ending of Star Trek The Motion Picture with V'ger, so... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Although certainly there is that parallel, right, about meeting your creator. Right. Although I assume that's an unintentional parallel. Or maybe like a Joseph Campbell, you know, one of these uh, underlying storyline things, tropes or whatever. Right, Paul? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to think of other examples though but it's it's all over the problem i think is that uh, a lot of the examples you get a lot of times feel like they're riffing on this scene from blade runner oh exactly right at least you can point to the motion picture as predating blade runner but like when lemon grab confronts princess bubblegum <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> you made me <laughs> <laughs> They're a relevant example for for kids. <laughs> it's a good episode. <laughs> One thing I would like to point out 
is that uh, the incept dates for the uh, the four replicants we have we have actually reached those points, I believe. Oh yeah. And in fact, it turns out that Zora created on Paul's birthday last year. Oh, no kidding! Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I remember when it was a uh, Leon's inception date. Somebody posted that and said, "Happy birthday, Leon!" <laughs> <laughs> but also speaking of auspicious dates, this the premiere of this movie was between the day you were born and the day I was born, which is only two weeks apart. It's a period of time we celebrate every year. If you listen to our other podcasts, it's part of the birthday in Regnum. Yes. <laughs> That's what I like to call it. Joe Piscopo Day also falls in the there. The two-week period, you and I are not the same age. <laughs> so, you know, in case we don't want to do a Joe Piscopo's birthday episode next year, we can do a some sort of Blade Runner theme <laughs> episode instead. Maybe, uh, maybe in two years when it's actually 2019. Oh, that's true, yeah. And then, obviously, the thing that we haven't discussed... Um, is that this is, in fact, the first movie to be based in some way on a Philip K. Dick story. It's the first? So so I looked into this. There is a 1962 episode of a British anthology series called Out of This World that adapts one of his short stories called Imposter. Uh, actually, the, the person who, fun fact, the person who adapts his story is Terry Nation, who would go on to create the Daleks for Doctor Who. Uh, but as the as is the case with a lot of British television from that time period, that episode no longer exists in the archives, so you can't watch it. But after that, yeah, there was nothing until Blade Runner in 1982, which was um, filmed while Philip K. Dick was alive, but he passed away before the movie itself was released. Oh, yeah. But apparently um, he had the opportunity to see some of the rushes like Ridley Scott brought him on set and they showed him I know, just some of the footage. And then they apparently showed him like a, a like 10 minute reel of like a bunch of the visual effect scenes. And he apparently was incredibly impressed by it. Like he basically said, I don't understand how you guys were able to reach into my head and produce the things that I imagined when I was writing these stories. <laughs> oh, wow. He apparently liked it so much that he asked them to play it again. Although he uh, he died before he could see the finished product. It sounds like, from what they showed him, that he was actually fairly pleased with how it was turning out. Because apparently, I guess they like some of the initial drafts he was unhappy with. But like by the time they got to the shooting script and showed him some stuff, he was happier with it. Nice. Yeah, because these stories are so adaptable to film. Like they, they're all just based on really good, interesting ideas. So, so Minority Report, of course, I remember that one. I forgot Total Recall was his. Yes, I believe that's actually the second movie adaptation. I think next is technically <laughs> the, okay. The yeah, movie yep. next is technically uh, a Philip K. Dick, and then of course the TV stuff like The Man in the High Castle. Oh yeah, on Amazon obviously is is a Philip K. Dick adaptation. Oh right, there are two versions of Total Recall for some reason. There are. Yeah, the one with Colin Farrell. Oh yeah, of oh. course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can we wipe out this memory? Can we wipe out the memory of that? <laughs> I d- I don't think we have to wipe it out because I think it's been implanted in us. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't think it really exists. 
No. <laughs> See, that's the convenient. You don't have to believe anything anymore if you may or may not be a replicant. <laughs> and uh, one thing we haven't mentioned yet that I really am honestly somewhat surprised we haven't really talked about is the score by Evangelis. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You sounded like you were going to say something, then you were just like, no, appreciative noises. It was it was probably one of my favorite things about this movie. I couldn't really see it with any other soundtrack, to be honest. Or apparently neither could Ridley Scott. He apparently would play like Vangelis uh, tracks on um, over the set to like let people know like, all right, we're finally the setup's finally ready. We're about ready to actually start shooting to sort of get everyone in the mood. Mm. One of the things that the score does a great job of is all of these establishing scenes or like the skyline views. It it was kind of gave me a sense of wonder as I was watching those things. It really comes to the forefront. It's something you're really supposed to be paying attention to, which is kind of weird. That's that's the interesting thing about those opening shots or a lot of the parts about futuristic Los Angeles is that it's supposed to be dingy and dreary, but there's kind of a beauty to it as well. And the score just kind of drives that home. Yeah, I have to myself confess a fondness for this sort of early 80s synthesizer sound. But one of the things I actually think every time I watch this and then hear the score is how much it reminds me in some ways of like early 80s Doctor Who music. No, oh, yeah. they're just a, both a switch to that, like uh, ethereal synthesizer sound to a degree. So, I mean, I like both, obviously, but it's a great score. It's a it's a shame that it's basically impossible to get like a hold of as far as I can tell. Despite what the uh, what the credits claim, there was not like an official soundtrack of the score until like maybe 2000 then i think there was a limited release around the final cut they uh, they put out like a um the los angeles philharmonic plays the score of blade runner as their soundtrack instead or something <laughs> like that <laughs> well we still have that uh youtube video of that italian guy <laughs> that you showed us beforehand which we'll post <laughs> doing the acapella that's, a, that's amazing it was really cool yeah. during during our recording break i listened to it in fall and it was great <laughs> and he he did hold up a sign that said that he was performing all the the sounds you heard that it was all acapella it's impressive yeah so blade runner 2049 adam have you seen it yet i have not nor it's, i uh, so so today is uh october 9th as we record it came out on october 6th and i did not get a chance to see it because i was working all weekend but i'm gonna try and get get out and see it this coming weekend yeah i had to watch i had to re-watch this first and i wanted to record this podcast first and now i'm gonna sure. go see it just because i'm i'm hyped <laughs> up for it i think this was just just the right thing for me paul are you are you gonna go check it out do you feel the the need now yeah yeah i think so honestly I'm there's part of me that actually wants to rewatch rewatch the original again like one more time before I go see 2049 
Wow. So that must mean that uh, you, you did enjoy this movie, ultimately, because I don't think one typically goes to sequels and rewatches movies they didn't enjoy. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, maybe you're <laughs> different. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that I would benefit from a repeat viewing on, sure. especially if I pick up my own my uh, copy and listen to the glorious Vangelis soundtrack on my studio monitors you know <laughs> yeah. so i it might is. might be doing that and it seems like 2049 will be cool but with a running time of two hours and 43 minutes you know you gotta you gotta find you, you gotta clear your whole night away i mean maybe not surprising but perhaps just worth remarking on that you enjoyed the film just because i know that in this is somewhat a divisive film not everyone enjoys this movie uh, for some people this is a movie that they can sort of appreciate like the visual effects of but the actual storyline doesn't do anything for them i can see where they are where those people may be coming from like i wasn't i i found myself more engaged by the visuals and the world than you know than by the actual story itself um i think maybe that's somewhat why i do want to rewatch it yeah yeah that sounds similar to to how i how I came to it when I rewatched it. And, uh, and, and Roger Ebert as well, it turns out. Oh, really? Did he give this one a low rating? So Roger Ebert reviewed this film three times. He reviewed it in 1982, in which he gave it, I think, three stars and said, it's incredible to look at, but the story lacks humanity. Uh, and then he did the original director's cut in like 92, the one that they put together where they removed the narration, but they didn't have a chance to like finalize everything the way Ridley Scott wanted it. Then he was basically like, yep, it's still great to look at, but I still don't find it a very human story. And then he reviewed it for the final cut in which he actually, actually included it in his great movies list where he basically says something to the effect of, uh, it's about time that I just acknowledge that this is in fact part of the canon of like cinema this is a classic and those last couple times when i was talking about how it was lacking humanity yeah i don't know what i was talking about because i totally see it now it was the voiceover killed it for him yeah could have been (laughs) so paul it sounds like you enjoyed the movie uh is who would you recommend this to who who would i recommend this to Um, who should see this movie yeah who should everyone or everyone (laughs) (laughs) replicants or humans (laughs) I would. This is the opportunity for me to get mad at you, like I got mad at Amber when we did Forbidden Planet. Oh, <laughs> no pressure. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I would say anyone who at all likes science fiction in the true sense of the genre. Not well. It sounds really bad to say the true sense of the genre, mm-hmm. but you know. Like science fiction, not as in not space western or whatever. So hard science fiction or harder science fiction, maybe. <laughs> yeah, anyone who has an interest in that, like those the the kind of science fiction that you know poses those like fundamental questions about you know what it is to be human, and and anyone who's like a fan of uh, cyberpunk, anything or anime, yeah, Ghost we have in the shell things like that. Yeah, you know, you I've... have to see where like that whole aesthetic came from yeah i don't know if we've talked about it, but i think visually this is a huge influence on at least the visual interpretation of cyberpunk yeah, so, yeah. definitely definitely and I, I think that's actually to be honest a big part of what drew me into it is that 
just that visual appeal, just that kind of gritty, brightly lit, but, you know, dark and dirty future. So, Paul, you've watched a movie we thought you should watch, and now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think everyone should watch. Or a couple somethings. Or a couple somethings. Or, I guess, anything. What's something that people should experience or do or watch or be? (laughs) Be? (laughs) Suggestions for being. (laughs) I would suggest replicant at least once in your life. (laughs) I suggest you be an off-worlder just to see what it's like. (laughs) Living with the replicants. Watching the attacks on the shoulder of Orion. Mm-hmm. Hang off the edge of a building. Experience fear. <laughs> so my piece of media. So this uh, this game is called VA11 Hall A or Valhalla. Um, it's a subtitle Cyberpunk Bartender Action, and it is a visual novel uh, set in a you know somewhat dystopian like corporate city state, basically where. Uh, nanobots have been released throughout the city and are like in everyone but some people's bodies reject them and uh you know it's just a it's a real throwback yeah it's got a very 80s 90s aesthetic to it basically you play a a bartender who serves up drinks made with what i assume is whatever like future synth the hall (laughs) and and based on whether you get these drinks right, serving them to your patrons will give you different routes for different uh, endings um, to the novel. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's like really more about the uh, the characters and the world, and it it kind of explores some cyberpunk tropes, a lot of anime tropes. It's on Steam. I enjoyed it. I guess this episode, uh, what I'd like to recommend is a 2014 movie called Ex Machina. It's draws a lot from this movie you can see the parallels pretty easily but it's well acted it's it's good you'll get a lot of artificial intelligence vengeance going on if that's your thing so it's available on amazon prime right now if you happen to have that so i have two recommendations this time because apparently i seem to always do recommendations in twos i think uh so my first recommendation since uh uh, this is a Philip K. Dick adaptation, uh, is the 2011 film The Adjustment Bureau, starring Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. Matt Damon plays a, an up-and-coming politician who meets this dancer and suddenly notices that there are men in gray suits and uh, fedoras trying very hard to keep them apart for reasons that you discover. It's it's uh, it's not the greatest movie, to be perfectly honest. It's not amazing, but uh, I think it's very well done at what it sets out to do. And it's a nice, enjoyable film. So that's my first recommendation. And then my second recommendation um, is actually kind of similar to Paul's in that uh, this is also a computer game. Uh, so I understand that Blade Runner did, in fact, have... There is a the graphic adventure version of Blade Runner that was released in, like, 1997. But I've never actually played it, so I'm not going to recommend that. What I am instead going to recommend is the 1990... Uh, Tex Murphy graphic adventure, Martian Memorandum, which is available on both Steam and good old games, if you're interested. It's it's basically about Tex Murphy, who's very much this like hard-boiled detective, and he's investigating some shady going on on Earth that seems related be related to stuff happening on Mars. So uh, you should check it out. This, this looks like something I should play. 
Yeah, there's actually a whole series of Tex Murphy games. And uh, I think, in fact, pos- so Martian Memorandum is actually the second one in the series. But I think actually on, certainly on good old games, and I think also on Steam, it actually comes packaged with the first one called Mean Streets. But uh, I liked Martian Memorandum better than Mean Streets personally. So check it out. Well, Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We'll see you all next time when uh, we review. And by we, I don't necessarily mean me. Charlie and presumably Jessica will review another uh, must-see movie. So until then, enjoy this outro music now. (laughs) Well, it fades in, so (laughs) can I not fade in until you say that? (laughs) You're hamstringing me here. (laughs) (laughs) So enjoy this outro music that is now softly playing as it gets louder as I get quiet. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to go by DJ rules and get louder as it gets louder. <laughs> <laughs> wraps it up thanks so much for joining us we had a great time hope you really enjoyed it and don't forget to check us out on facebook and instagram to hear us discuss more movies and television shows that you really should have already been watching He's done that with other movies too. It's like he's actually willing to go back and rewatch something and say, like, yeah, I did that maybe not fair. I don't remember what he eventually gave Zoolander, but I guess he panned it right off the bat. I think it came out right after 9-11, and there was some sort of reference, something about the references to Malaysia or something. That he gave Zoolander a really bad review. Wow. And it was like too soon after 9-11. I'll have to I'll have to link to that. I'm sure he didn't go back and give it four stars. <laughs> wow. Roger Ebert gave the film one star out of four and felt the film was insensitive in its portrayal of child labor, but also added that to some degree, Zoolander is a victim of bad timing because of September 11th. <laughs> uh, according to Stiller, years later in private, Ebert admitted that he changed his mind and thought the film was funny and apologized to him for going, quote, overboard. And uh, the nice thing about the fact that it's just you, me, and Paul yeah. means that if you want, you can save this clip and use it as part of a Gobeski Walls report tag show. <laughs> no one Done. will ever know. <laughs>